Hello, and welcome to Spotlight On, the podcast that brings together business leaders, entrepreneurs, and experts covering a range of topics. I'm Nicholas Barton, founder and CEO of the Barton Partnership. We're an award-winning executive recruitment and consulting solutions firm, providing permanent search and independent consulting services across strategy, sustainability, and M&A, data and analytics, and transformation and change. Hi, all. Mike Fritz from the Barton Partnership here. Welcome to our next edition of the Spotlight Podcast. In this episode, I'm very excited to be joined by Andrew Westbetcher, Global Vice President of Sales and Channels at Traceable. Andrew, great to see you and thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. Of course. Even before hopping in, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself? Sure. Based in Silicon Valley, just south of the of the city here in San Francisco. Been in software, enterprise software sales for 23 years, specifically focused on hard tech like infrastructure, data center networking, network performance monitoring, security, AppSec, and now APIs. Excellent. And can you tell us a little bit about your current company? So I work for Jyoti Bonsal, who is the uh, was the former CEO and founder of AppDynamics, which he scaled uh, and sold to Cisco for $3.7 billion in 2017. After that, he uh, started a company called Harness, which is in the DevOps automation space. That's uh, about $100 million in ARR. And then he founded Traceable, which is in the API security space, addressing a series of uh, nascent new challenges as companies move to microservices and front their applications via APIs. Jyoti is also the managing director and founder of a VC fund called Unusual Ventures. Traceable today is about 165 employees we're growing quite quickly to address some of the the challenges that large enterprise have as they, as mentioned, move to microservices. Those microservices are all interconnected via APIs. And so we believe that the API has become the world's largest unsecured attack surface. And so just like CrowdStrike and Sentinel-1 with EDR and XDR, An API is effectively just another endpoint within your uh, IT assets that you as an enterprise organization need to enforce the appropriate security controls for. So we address uh, a series of use cases, whether it's inventorying your APIs, understanding their risk posture, testing them for vulnerabilities, and providing detection and protection capabilities at runtime for your production applications that utilize APIs both externally facing. And those are those that are behind the firewall that are interconnecting all of your uh, APIs or your microservices. Some of our customers include very large businesses like American Express, PayPal, Bank of America, Informatica, and a litany of others. Uh, And so we've really focused exclusively on selling to the CISOs, the VPs of AppSec, uh, the VPs of data security, of the largest enterprises. So Fortune 500, even Fortune 100 are really experiencing the the security pains and challenges associated with this this concept of of API sprawl. Uh, So that's what we do here. Great overview. And it's interesting as I feel as though we're always in this evolving and ever-changing paradigm shift within the landscape of cybersecurity, where you know from the early days of network security and firewalls to endpoint to cloud security, and thinking about what those threats look like that keeps the market ever-changing. Are there certain threats that have always been consistent within security, but maybe change shape over time? Or 
are you seeing actually like more new threats to organizations as a whole? Yeah, so all of the typical vulnerabilities and uh, attack pathways that have been used by threat actors over the last 20 plus years, whether it's cross-site scripting, SQL injection, NoSQL injection, you know, man-in-the-middle attacks, all of those attacks that could be you know, used against a, a network firewall, used against a, a front-end application, used against you know, a network device, all of those same attacks can be used to exploit an API. So we solve for the legacy attack vectors that have now applied themselves to microservices and APIs, but there are, to your point, a, a series of new exploits specific to an API. One of them is known as Broken Object Level Authorization, or BOLA. What that is, is a threat actor is effectively tricking the authorization system of an API to bypass that authorization to get access to services and data that lie beyond that API. And that is hard for uh, most security vendors to detect and protect against because every API is its own snowflake. It has its own policies for author- authorization, authentication, data access policies, et cetera. And so our model is applying a combination of signature-based detection and protection capabilities with machine learning-based anomaly detection capabilities that are designed to detect these sort of nouveau uh, attack vectors uh, targeting APIs, as I mentioned, this concept of BOLA, otherwise known as IDOR, which are very, very complex attack vectors and something that any organization that's dealing with microservices that has some semblance of sensitive data that, that they're transiting via their APIs, they are not immune uh, to these nouveau API style of attacks. So that's what we address. It's interesting, as you mentioned the word new, whether with threats or types of products and companies, you're someone who's done this for, what, 20 plus years now, scaled multiple early stage businesses and seen acquisitions. When you think about joining a new early stage business at you know various points in your career, especially when it's a new player in the space, because you know almost any company could say, hey, we're new, we're different, but with you, like whether you're selling to the same types of buyers or maybe new buyers, depending on the type of product, as we think about breaking into a new market, building a go-to-market plan, building pipeline from scratch and net new revenue, where does that really start with breaking in for the first time with new customers as a new early stage company? The first thing that you really need to understand is that there is an ocean of very well-funded startup companies here in the Valley, New York, abroad, in Austin, et cetera, that are products that are searching for a problem. And that's a recipe for not having a good time at that startup. And so what you really need to focus on when you evaluate any new opportunity, whether it's a you know a CRO role, a CFO role, a VP of engineering role, what is the real driving and organic need and pain that the product is solving? If there isn't a what I refer to as a through line of customer value uh, across many different prospective customers where you can codify two or three repeatable use cases that serve a very compelling, expensive, and urgent customer pain, 
That is what you need as a as an employee that's or a prospective employee at a or a prospective executive at a new company. You need to evaluate at the core of everything you do. Take the product aside. Where is the customer's house on fire? Where is the customer pain? What urgency is driving the the need to solve that pain? Whether it's compliance or risk or some CISO is you know having a, a career acceleration path and they want to innovate in their security control apparatus. And so that's the the first thing is you look at the nucleus of everything is what is the the really burning expensive problem that the customer is trying to solve and validate that across multiple different prospective customers. Then that informs your product strategy, your messaging, and a lot of your go-to-market. And and sort of that, these are concentric circles. At the at the nucleus of this is what is the, the customer value, the customer pain that you're solving for. The concentric circle around that is what is the product that effectively uh, and elegantly addresses those customer pains uh, in an organic fashion. And then the concentric circle around that is what is the go-to-market messaging, the go-to-market approach, whether it's outbound, whether it's PLG, bottoms up, whether it's channel driven, all of that is informed by that nucleus, which is what is the you know burning house on fire problem that the, the customer is trying to solve. And so when I talk to other executives or, or people that uh, are, are looking to make a move in their career, I always suggest that you really do your diligence in really understanding the customer pain because a lot of VCs, a lot of investors, for better or worse, they don't do that. They don't do their diligence deeply enough on sort of the, the customer pain and urgency associated with solving that pain. And I know I've mentioned it to you several times now, but even looking back on the first few conversations that we've had, it always stood out to me the amount of diligence that you do on on a product itself from its technicality to the business itself and as it pertains to how you take it to market. I mean, I've learned a lot from every conversation we've had and so many elements from our discussions that I take with myself as search work because again, it's not necessarily sales, but again, adjacent industries with presenting opportunities to candidates. So with you, when you think about your role within you know technology changing overall and really everyone's day-to-day changing recently, how has your role changed from the first time you stepped into a sales leadership position compared to as you think about your role today? I am Gen X. So the first thing is there is a, a, a just a, in terms of leadership style, there is a generational shift in terms of just culturally the way that you, the way that we managed sales teams in, in 2005 versus 2023 are, are very different. You know, I come from an old school, very aggressive you know, you better smile and dial, put up the numbers, and then and talk to me when when you've delivered something. That very aggressive sales leadership style doesn't work with millennials and, and Gen Z. Uh, they get turned off to it. And and as a leader, you as a as a forty four year old Gen Xer, you know, I recognize that I needed to shift and have more of a a softer approach or more empathetic approach to to leadership. And so. I learned that over the last, I would say, 10 years, which is I've, I really view my role as a, a sales executive, CRO, go-to-market executive, as a, as a servant leader, especially for the individuals that we've hired, we've recruited, we've enabled 
My job is I report to the CEO, I report to the board, I've got to deliver the numbers, but it's how you deliver the numbers and how you are able to ensure your team is learning, delivering on their expectations, delivering on their performance goals, but also doing it in a manner where they feel empowered, they are learning, they have a voice, and there is a a leader that's really invested in shaping them and mentoring them and coaching them and cares about their career progression. That's been the major shift for me over the last 10 years is not just pound down the number, the activity, the calls, the dials, et cetera. There's a lot more that goes into being a mature uh, go-to-market executive in in this, this lens of I'm a servant leader. I'm here to ensure that each of the individuals, either the direct reports or indirect reports, in my my sales and go-to-market organization all feel like they are advancing their career, they're being coached, they're learning, and also being able to be successful in delivering on their performance goals. Right. And it certainly differs between generations. And even introspectively, I see a lot with myself and in my own generation. But you know, the big thing I notice from my generation, even sitting on the sidelines, is the difference of feedback and coaching and almost detaching and pulling away with with negative feedback oftentimes which you know differs so much i assume from the old school you know dial for dollars don't leave the office till 10 p.m when you made 200 phone calls and for me i I always monitor recently and try to be cognizant of any changes i'm observing that honestly may have stemmed from everyone moving to fully remote work during the pandemic in march of 2020 until now where you know they try to simulate back to normal life and you know, maybe it wasn't much different with you being on the road so much with a large majority of your career traveling, but especially if you think about new hires, those starting out their career out of school for the first time, who maybe doesn't have a manager at a desk right next to them. You know, a year ago for us, like we saw the big shift of getting back to the office with our clients, whether, you know, companies lost a lot of employees who were getting higher paying remote jobs or really losing their sense of culture from not being there. You know, I think the idea of the Monday through Friday nine to five feels much more like an antiquated approach than anything else at this point. But especially with an early stage business, I'm not even sure if you guys have a physical office, but whether in person, remote or hybrid, have you seen a difference overall with your own leadership style and approach as it pertains to motivation and productivity or team? You know, are there any ripple effects from the pandemic or you know, has it been more of just a gra- gradual shift overall? Here at Traceable, we don't have an office. We have no offices in North America. We have we have a an R and D facility in India, uh, which is a which is an office, but we don't have a, a dedicated office here in the U.S. And that was purposeful. Which is, um, we have a highly distributed team. I have seventeen or eighteen now enterprise sales reps distributed all across the football cities here in in the U.S. I've got. 10 uh, business development reps, BDRs, uh, all distributed around the country. Um, I've got SCs distributed around the country. I've got sales ops folks. I've got you know channel folks distributed across the country. The, the reason why we've opted for that model is that we can pool from a much wider set of talent then localizing all of our hiring, for instance, in in San Francisco or the Bay Area. And so we've got, you know, BDRs in Idaho, BDRs in New York, BDRs in Boston, the same with the reps. And so I don't know if I I would ever see having a five day a week 
return to office, I think we've made it work through a combination of the one-on-ones that we do. I do one-on-ones with my direct reports on you know every Monday, and then I do skip levels, which are my indirect reports I do on a monthly basis. We have uh, routine team meeting syncs on Zoom several times a week. We use asynchronous stuff like you know Loom and other video tools. We use Slack as sort of the hub of our communication, and we're making it work. Now there are elements where you don't have the bonding, the the sort of the social and cultural aspects of a of a completely distributed workforce. So what we do in terms of our sales and marketing and our go to market team is every three months at the end of every quarter, the first new week of every month, we assemble all fly out to a a city, whether it's, you know, Austin or Denver or San Francisco or Chicago um, for a two day QBR, where we not only focus on the the sales uh, performance targets for the next quarter and the out quarters and when, where we can optimize our performance and what, you know, learnings that we can have from the, the product management team, the engineering team, the executive team. But we also use it as a mechanism for uh, team bonding, social stuff. We go bowling. We go to Meow Wolf in, in Denver. We do sports events. And so we make it work. I don't believe that we have to answer your question. I don't believe that we've had a productivity hit. Uh, I think we've kept the same productivity pre-pandemic to post-pandemic. But I think I think we're making it work. I actually strongly believe that we're making it work as a non-office, fully distributed workforce. And now it's very debatable. Um, a lot of other executives believe that return to office is the the only way to to increase team performance. I believe that there's there's better ways to do that if you if you want to keep a distributed workforce. I fully agree, and I might be one of the more rare ones in my generation or age that, you know, I personally really enjoy being in the office and feel like there's definitely an element that helps me and gets things done. But I think overall, the the notion and option of flexibility for someone to work hybrid or come to the office when needed, as long as it fits in, not so much with their schedule, but if they're overall the thought of, hey, I'm getting my work done from working from home or not having the commuting time. But I think the big thing is, as you mentioned, there's just so many tools and productivity tools, collaboration um, software that just makes our lives so much easier now, which almost leads me to my next question being just overall with tools or products or anything, how do you feel about the market for the next few quarters or even looking into next year? So the jury is still out. Um, there's conflicting sort of analyses of a, a, a pending hard landing or a soft landing, whether that is, you know, in fact, a, a, a recession. Um, some some banks and, and analysts say, nope, it's going to be a soft landing, soft landing, and we're going to avoid one. And, and then, you know, Goldman Sachs this morning in the Wall Street Journal is, is indicating that, yes, the, this is more likely for a variety of reasons that we will have a hard landing in a, in a uh, recessionary event in 2024. Despite that, it's good to pick industries that are and, and companies that are recession proof. And what is recession proof? Recession proof is something that going back to that concentric circle, the nucleus of that is something that is solving an urgent and expensive problem is recession proof. It's the nice to have, and there is an ocean of nice to have B2B software companies that have gotten by on the the uptick that we had in the market in you know sort of the the mania, the bubble that we had in 2020 and 2021, those companies are in real danger. The companies that aren't solving really expensive, urgent problems that are 
really, uh, you know, do you really need this product? I think a lot of CFOs and, and directors of finance at, at enterprises are going to be evaluating their software spend and evaluating their renewals uh, and making hard calls on what is an absolute critical uh, investment versus those that really aren't in the the sort of urgent problem solving arena, if you will. So I think there's going to be a lot of sort of product acquisitions, a lot of down rounds, and a lot of companies just just going away. Those companies that aren't solving, as I mentioned, very, very specific, urgent and expensive problems. Yeah. So Andrew, I mean, as we talk about certain trends or, you know, even the notion around um, recession-proof types of products or areas of market, are there certain trends that you believe are still on the rise that will be even stronger to next year or certain things now that you feel like are going to remain really consistent as a, a core focus of whether cybersecurity or just organizations as a whole moving forward? Yeah. So look, I've been lucky enough in my 23 years career where just financially I'm in a position where I can invest in, in, in seed stages. And so I've got a handful of seed stage investments in security companies that are solving emergent problems. I think in security specifically, I think the later stage companies are, uh, you know, are going to be most impacted by what's going on in the macro environment. The seed in series A is where it's really exciting right now because those organizations aren't worried about the the valuation of their next round. They're not worried about the pedigree of their next investor. Uh, they're just heads down focusing on building something really compelling. And, and that's, you know, in any given macroeconomic decline, whether it was after the, the dot-com bust or after the uh, world financial crisis, those are the best times to, to build really foundationally great products that can turn into uh, ginormous companies. And so I look at this time as, from an investment perspective, I look at this time as really exciting to go find the really early stage seed or Series A companies that are that are building really interesting new uh, security products that are addressing emergent new problems. And those are those are the, the the types of investments that I'm making because of kind of where we are in the macro environment and the the opportunity to to find winners that ultimately become the next CrowdStrike, the next. Snowflake outside of security, the next Tines or Okta, et cetera. The time to do that, to, to, to find and invest in those companies are, are right now. And it's interesting because I saw a piece a few days ago that even from the boom in 2020 and 2021, there's still been another, I want to say 300% increase in people filing for new businesses in the US alone across industries since 2021, which Honestly, it's just exciting to see that even with the tumultuous nature of the market, that you're going to continue to see more and more new exciting businesses emerge. And honestly, hopefully a lot of learning lessons from the past few years on best practices and you know, with the market as it gets tougher, uh, for better or worse. But um, Andrew, no, I mean, final piece before we wrap up, I'll uh, turn it over to you just to give a final plug about yourself. And I always like to ask folks just to summarize yourself in a, a few lines to see how we should be thinking about you. Yeah, so you know, for better or worse, I'm probably one of the the most technical CROs, VPs, sales leaders, GTM leaders that that you'll meet, and and that's just owed to the fact that you know I had a, a CS in business dual degree, and I've been very focused on hard tech 
and 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 I'm very diligent in in the types of companies that that I've picked. I've been very successful in working for you know company like Meraki that was acquired for 1.2 billion in 2012. Then another Sequoia company called Thousand Eyes that was acquired for a billion dollars by by Cisco. And and Lacework helped scale that to an $8.3 billion valuation. And all those were through very diligent research and and product and customer value-driven analysis on the types of companies that I want to partner with, whether it's work for or invest in. Um, So that's one area that I pride myself on, which is being more technical than the average bear. And then the second thing is... From a from a sales and, and go-to-market leadership perspective, is being highly, highly, highly metrics driven. And the the way that I approach metrics is I look at um, we've invested in a, a few tools that allow us to look at all of our outbound activity, whether it's a, a salesperson or a, a business development rep at BDR, looking at the sort of daily, weekly, monthly, quarterly activity as it relates to the calls, the emails. Um, the partner meetings, the customer meetings, uh, the conversations that they're having as we as we use Gong and Chorus to to analyze uh, our customer interactions. So it's there is an art and a science to enterprise software sales. I think a healthy mixture of the two and not being overly artful or overly scientific is blending and having the the science or the math of enterprise sales blended with the art of sales, which is the the evangelism, the relationship development, the you know competitive differentiation, et cetera. Having an equal blend of the science and the math with, with the the art of enterprise software sales is something that I also um, have have perfected over the last decade. Andrew, this was excellent. Uh, I think we're at time, but again, I appreciate you hopping on the podcast and always uh, a pleasure speaking. So until next time.